This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. One of life's terrible truths is that the price of love is grief. Eventually, we all lose people we love, and the hole they leave behind can be an overwhelming abyss with pain that rivals any physical injury imaginable. In this age of COVID-19, we are surrounded by grief. We're surrounded by grief and by loss at every turn. Today's guest knows intimately the terrible dimensions of grief and will share with us his creative, compassionate, and life-affirming response to it. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Please subscribe to our series on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm happy to warmly welcome Jay Garfinkel to the show today to talk about his new book, Heirlooms, Memory and Cherished Objects. Jay Garfinkel is a fine arts photographer, television producer, and writer. Over a 40-year career, he produced thousands of hours of animation, reality TV, and documentaries. He currently focuses on still life and landscape photography. Jay Garfinkel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. Your book started out as a photo exhibit, and the book itself is a beautiful object of art. What was the idea behind the project? Well, the idea was that uh, when a person passes, uh, they leave behind objects. Everyone uh, in their lifetime will collect thousands of objects, whether it be trivial things like ashtrays, glasses, uh, pens. Not so trivial, of course, if you need the pen or or the ashtray. And cars, items of clothing. And when the person ceases to be, uh, the survivors are left with a horrible task of having to decide what to do with it. Uh, many times, uh, those objects are, are given away to charities, to friends and family who can use them. At the end of the day, though, uh, when everything has been given away, uh, as was in the case of uh, my own son's uh, belongings, in comes the junk man and sweeps away all of the material life, the things that were the objects of that person's life, they cease to be. And what you have is an empty room, which leaves me and leaves the people that I've met in the course of doing this book with a very unsettling feeling. When my son died, I collected uh, just a few personal objects and put them in three suitcases, and brought them home with me. And on the way, I thought to myself, what am I doing with these suitcases? If I had given it away to the junk man, what difference would it be than putting it in my my storage vault? I'll never see it again. And I was inspired by the idea uh, 
just because I am a visual artist, to take those things that were most meaningful to me personally uh, and um, photograph them. Uh, then I could feel comfortable in never seeing them again in a storage bin uh, because those very personal um, photographs would be there for me to see, look at, and to um, uh, and have the connection of memory uh, to my son. And that's what led to this idea of memory and cherished objects. The idea that there is an emotional connection between memory and the object. And a photograph very often, at least in my case, sparks uh, that, that um, emotional connection. Your son was not a victim of terror or any violence. In fact, he had suffered from several chronic health problems for years, which were expected to continue to be chronic, uh, so that when he died of heart failure, that came suddenly and unexpectedly. How did you get to One Family, an organization that supports families of people murdered in terror attacks? Well, that's a very good and interesting story. I do think that there is a connection um, between someone who dies unexpectedly, uh, for example, in my son's case, uh, and uh, or someone who dies in a car crash uh, or, or any other kind of accident where they suddenly die, and between victims of terrorism. What, what is uh, similar is that it's completely unexpected, uh, and that it's, it's being unexpected uh, uh, that it goes beyond sadness. You know, we're all going to lose somebody uh, in our lifetime. Usually it's a parent, and we're sad. But it's not unexpected. When it becomes unexpected, for example, when you say to a loved one, uh, have a nice day, or, and the other one says back to you, yeah, love you, see you later, and they get on a bus, a city bus, for example, in Israel, and they die in a terrorist attack, that is an overwhelming experience because it is so totally unexpected. A friend of mine who had seen my artwork um, said to me, why don't you go visit the folks over at One Family? They deal with people who died in terror. And, uh, and I thought, well, my son didn't die in terror, and do I really want to open myself up to more families uh, who experience grief. Uh, and I was very reluctant, but I did. And I met with the uh, CEO, Mark Belsberg, who, after chatting for a while, said to me that I'm suffering from what many people suffer from who've lost somebody when who are grieving at, at, uh, in a very profound way from wearing a griever's mask. And I could never get comfortable uh, wearing that mask. And I asked him, what is that mask? And he said, a mask is when you're, uh, after some time uh, of, of grieving, you're in a public space and there are other people around you. Uh, if you're happy, people say, well, you know, he's gotten over it. And if you're unhappy, uh, people say he'll never get over it. And you, you could be unhappy or happy for, for no reason other than the fact that like any other person, there are events that make you happy or unhappy, nothing to do with the death of anyone. Uh, and 
that feeling of being looked at and being judged for your emotions and people taking your emotional temperature was uh, was uh, unnerving. And he said, come to uh, work or volunteer. I, I didn't ever work, but I volunteered for us. Meet some of our families because it's a place where you can take your griever's mask off. You can be who you are uh, and you won't be judged. And I was skeptical at first if I wanted to do it, but I decided, you know, I, I don't want to stay in the space that I'm in, which was a very uncomfortable space. Uh, and I decided to throw my hat in and see what I could do to help other people. Uh, and I did. So uh, would you say that for some people, grief support groups can be very helpful? Oh, yeah. I, I'm a, a big believer in grief support groups. I, I think that uh, you, you need to be with people uh, who are in the same boat you are. First of all, you can get great advice from from uh, people like that. They've had the experience over a long period of time. If you're just starting on the road to grief and you're inexperienced, um, uh, you don't know what to make of your emotions, and they they can be a, a useful guide. So sure, I, I I think it's a great thing. So tell us about your own experience of the difference between depression, grief, and sadness. Yeah, it's a very good question, Renee. Um, we're all sad for one reason or another, and it passes. And we're sad for a specific reason. Uh, in the case of someone who dies, you know, a parent, you're sad. And yet... Uh, at the end of the day, you're going to get over it because the sadness passes. In depression, it, it's over no particular reason, at least in my experience of depression. You're not depressed for any, you don't, you don't focus on anything in particular. You don't keep telling yourself the same obsessive story all the time. You're, it's, it's, you're just depressed. In grief, that's a whole different kettle of fish. In grief, you know why you have grief. You have obsessive thoughts about the person. You can't get out of it. It's like a blanket that covers you with darkness. And no matter how hard you try, uh, you, you can't escape it. And it comes over you um, intermittently. Sometimes you feel great, and then for no particular reason, uh, you start thinking about the person and this darkness comes over you, or you see the objects uh, that you that that you inherited, and that sets off a, a whole range of emotions, uh, all of them not good. So you uh, interviewed, you met with, and spoke with uh, bereaved parents who lost a child in a terror attack, whose child was murdered. And you uh, worked with them to pick an object that was meaningful to them. Tell us about that process. Yeah, I, I, um, Mark and uh, Chantel Belsberg uh, at One Family suggested that I go throughout the whole of Israel, from north to south, east to west, in, in every kind of neighborhood with very diverse populations, so I really wasn't dealing with one kind of family, whether religious or non-religious. We had 
we had a whole mixed bag. We had Christians and Druze and um, and uh, and Jews and religious and and at, and I thought it was a very useful thing for me. I'd only been here for seven years and knew the part of Jerusalem that I lived in, and I knew something about the families. But I I'd never been in the home of many Israelis, at least uh, the diverse population of Israelis. So it was a very uh, interesting experience. Also, um, none of the families spoke English, which was, um, in, in a way, I had to uh, understand it from their language point of view. They, they spoke in Hebrew, and I took my notes in English, and I had a translator with me for those times that I was stuck. Uh, although I, I pretty much understood everything. To have people express themselves in the language that they were familiar with, and as you know, language is very much connected to culture and and the death of a child. Uh, and I only met people who who uh, who lost a son or a daughter. Uh, interestingly, the ranges of ages were also from ten years old, which was the youngest, to thirty five years old. So uh, it, it was a, a a population where I. I learned uh, something about Israeli life and also about grieving, and, and they were very much connected. Um, the families, um, when I first met with them, I would sit down with them, uh, and they wanted to know, without asking me, my bona fides. Why should they open themselves up to me? And I opened myself up to them very, very early on in these conversations. I always took an iPad with me uh, with uh, pictures of my son and pictures of the artwork that I had done um, uh, and very much the, the pictures that started this, this project. And it was only after that uh, when they, they could feel that they could trust me that they opened themselves up telling me their story. And their stories were different. Uh, I, I never, I, I found that there was no common denominator of how people handled their grief, which was sort of interesting. People handled it in all sorts of different ways, um, ways that I wouldn't have done it, but but certainly it seemed to have comforted them. And so you uh, you spoke with the bereaved parents. Did. Did you get any insight into the experience of siblings who are whose brother or sister were violently murdered? I did, and um, what people don't normally know about terrorist attacks is when the headlines go away, um, it, it, it's over for the for the public. They, okay, this this was a bad and terrible act. Uh, tragedy, and everybody's just, let's move on to the next uh, next headline, the next soundbite. But for the families, uh, it doesn't go away. Uh, not only doesn't it go away, it affects uh, the siblings uh, uh, in, the, in the family. And they take on, in many ways, the grief of their parents without getting the attention for it. Uh, you know, when someone dies in a, in a terror attack in, in Israel, the newspapers, television, the cameras are all, all over it, uh, talking to the families, trying to figure out what happened, the trial, 
first of all, you have to catch the person, and then there's the police hunt. So there's headlines all the time. Then there's the trial, and then there's what what's what's going to happen to the person who killed uh, their family member. Throughout that whole process of of newspaper and and and, and television circus around uh, a family, these siblings, these children, many times ages eight, nine, ten, even teenagers have to go to school. And in a school situation, they have friends who are who have seen the television reports and have read the newspapers and it's discussed in the families. So, so they're sort of uh, outsiders being discussed and it's extremely hard uh, on, on, on family members. Uh, and one, one of the good things about one family uh, is that they recognize that uh, early on and they have camps uh, to help, uh, in, in many cases, teenagers and post-teenagers um, stay together for weekend retreats or sometimes a week or two retreat uh, so that they're all together with people who are like them, who understand what they've been through. Uh, murder cries out for justice, uh, and you spoke about the manhunt that follows terror attacks, and um, police follow every murder that even is not uh, in a terrorist context. But what happens to the families when the murderer is found and convicted? Uh, and sometimes not found. What what is the impact of justice on the families? Oh, I think it's extremely from in my reading of the families and my meeting with the families. Uh, it, it, it occurs many times where the perpetrator is not brought to justice, uh, where they can't be found, or they've escaped to um, to Syria or to Turkey or to Jordan. Uh, so they they leave the jurisdiction. Um, of the place where they committed the terror attack, or they're protected by the Palestinian Authority, and it's hard to find them. So in those cases, uh, the, the, the uh, anger, I would say, but also the hurt uh, of the family goes on much longer than when the person is brought to justice. When uh, sentencing comes, uh, families are always in the courtroom uh, demanding uh, uh, that a, a strict sentence or a long sentence for the perpetrators. I think one of the most depressing, from my point of view, uh, scenes uh, here in Israel is when a person is brought to justice uh, and they're put into prison. And, and then because Israel does a deal with um, either Hamas or uh, usually Hamas, to exchange prisoners. Um, in the case of, there was an Israeli soldier who was captured by Hamas in the 2014 war. Uh, a, a thousand terror prisoners were let go. And these, uh, not all of them, but 360 of them had blood on their hands. That means they'd killed somebody in a terror attack. It was so profoundly affecting uh, the, these these families. Couldn't understand why uh, 
for the sake of one person who, who um, that the hundreds that were killed um, had to be had to be left let go. And I, I thought that was a and, and Israel doesn't do it as much anymore. It's had a political effect um, on 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 Israel's being able to do that. I think in a, in a good way. Uh, now, your book is is visually arresting and moving. Uh, we are audio, so our listeners will have to buy the book to see the photographs. But tell us about one particular photograph uh, that's in the book that that you like. I'm sure you like them all, but one that's very powerful. I think that the um, among the powerful uh, images in the book. Uh, was the murder of Rivka Holzberg. Uh, and many of uh, our listeners here will remember the Mumbai massacre. There was a movie made about it. Uh, and these were a group of terrorists uh, from Pakistan who made their way into India, to Bombay, uh, and decided to shoot up innocent people in a hotel, in the Mumbai Hotel, a classic five-star hotel. Along the way, they separated, a group separated from the main terror group, and they made their way to the Chabad uh, Lubavitch um, hotel, I guess you could call it, but it was more of a place, a gathering place uh, for for many people to come, um, a community center, uh, and uh, they decided to kill everybody in the building. Uh, they succeeded in killing uh, Rivka Holzberg and her husband, Gabriel, who ran the center. Th- they were Israelis from Afula in the northern part of Israel, and they had gone to uh, India as part of their mission. Their two-year-old child uh, survived the attack, uh, Moshe, and uh, was saved uh, by his Indian nanny, who uh, understood what was going on and grabbed the child before he could be shot and, and, uh, and, and, and took him to safety. In the course of uh, this terror attack, which killed 178 people, um, the terrorist shot Rivka in the neck and broke uh, the uh, necklace she was wearing. That necklace was given to her by her parents on her wedding day. Uh, and um, the parents put an ad telling people, you know, this is broken. How do we fix it? And the designer uh, stepped forward and said, I'll do it. And, sh- and she fixed it. And the, when they came to the meaningful object the, uh, that they wanted me, the cherished object they wanted me to photograph, they handed me this, um, uh, this necklace. And I didn't really know what to do with it. It, it was a necklace, and it was—it looked like many necklaces. It was—it was not ordinary, but not extraordinary either. Uh, and I thought to myself, "What would be? What's missing in this picture is the emotional connection between the person who gave the necklace, uh, and now it's back with them." Uh, so I asked her father um, if he would hold the necklace. And he did, and it's a defiant pose, uh, and it's it's a wonderful, uh, stark image that that needs to be seen. Uh, 
Uh, one of the things that I learned about uh, in doing this uh, project is not every object of memory has to have a pleasant memory associated with it. Uh, the memory associated with this necklace is not a pleasant memory, nor was it a pleasant memory for the family, but it was an important memory. Uh, and um, the necklace will be given uh, to when Moshe, who's now 13, when he one day marries, uh, will be given to his bride uh, as her wedding present. So, uh, so there is an heirloom quality to it, a continuity of passing something from one generation to the next generation. And at the same time, a certain sense of sadness at the loss. Well, you spoke with uh, 33 families. Do you have a sense of what characterized families who, in your judgment, seem to be coping best? Um, I think the ones that cope best are the ones uh, that join uh, the One Family programs. The One Family has extensive programs uh, for family members. Uh, they have psychological services. I think uh, the ones that do not fare well are the ones who sort of say it, it'll all work itself out in the end, and it hardly ever does. Um, but the ones who, who do are the ones who take their children into therapy, which I think um, because at the end of the day, when, when a terror attack happens, there's a tremendous change in the relationships within the family. And um, sometimes it's, it's for the better. And many times uh, it's, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. And tension and anger grow in the family and less resolved or mediated by someone on the outside, uh, the families do not do well. So, so I think that those families that use this intervention do very well. I found uh, that many of the mothers who lost children um, and because they told me this, it wasn't an observation necessarily, they, they told me. And I did observe these craft classes, working with one's hands and creating something new. And I thought uh, that it was uh, re really good that they're involved in it. And, you know, there are two campuses for one family, uh, one in, in Jerusalem and one in Renana. And both of them have extensive craft um, uh, programs for for mothers uh, who've lost who've lost children. Um, so so I think those, and I think that the the third one are those who involve themselves in helping others. You know, I found two kinds of folks. Uh, one kind of family they sort of became more insulated uh, and. You know, it's it's very hard to be with people who've lost a child. Uh, if if you obsess about it all the time, you sort of become a social pariah. Because if that's all you can talk about, um, people say, "Well, yeah, okay, I I really would rather not be with you socially." And they they um, sort of put themselves in, in a in a very bad place socially. They're very isolated socially. But those who do very well, it, it appeared to me, are, are those people who get engaged with, with helping other people. And I found that quite a bit. Uh, a lot of projects that they were involved with, a lot of social projects, a lot of uh, 
helping other people's projects, those families did well. What role, if any, did faith or religion play in the healing of some of the families you met? Well, that's a very good question. Um, let me just take one example of uh, a Druze family. Druze are Arabs, but they're not Muslims. They live in the northern part of Israel. Uh, it, it's a, a community that's uh, very patriotic to the country uh, and um, very religious, conservative religious values. Uh, and I, I visited uh, uh, several Druze families, but one stands out. Uh, his daughter uh, was killed coming home uh, from school. She was 13 years old, uh, getting ready to get onto the school bus, uh, and uh, someone put an IED to kill as many children as possible uh, near the bus stand, and, and she was killed. Um, and when I met with the father, Yosef, uh, he said to me um, that, and it, first of all, you have, the context is the Druze religion uh, is one that most people don't know about because they, they don't tell people about it. Uh, the elders know all the tenets of the religion and pass along to people what they need to know. But outsiders like myself really don't know the tenets of the, uh, of the religion, uh, except for the fact that everybody knows that Druze believe that the soul comes back um, uh, to earth uh, in the form of, a, of, an, of another person. And he said to me that um, he prays every day that his daughter will uh, find a home and a family that loves her as much as they did. And it seemed to be a man at peace. He he appeared to be very peaceful with it, as, as did his wife. Um, so I think that that was um, a very profound uh, religious uh, experience for me, experiencing someone else's uh, religious passion. Uh, I don't know that I'm as committed to the soul coming back and forth as, as he was, but, but, but it was nice to um, experience it uh, from someone who was religious. Uh, I found many Jews, uh, especially the more observant, uh, who uh, thought it was God's will and his will be done, and uh, they accepted uh, without understanding uh, why this all happened. Uh, so, so I did see that as well. Um, and, and finally, uh, what advice can you give to listeners who will be called upon and will want to comfort bereaved friends and family members in this terrible time of illness and death? Uh, I would say that there are three things that you should not do. Uh, and when confronting someone who's, who's lost um, uh, a child to a, or anyone really uh, in, in a tragedy, um, there are three things that you really shouldn't say. The first thing is uh, there's a reason for everything. The second thing that I think that is most hurtful is he's in a better place. And finally, 
uh, I would never say to someone, I know how you feel. You have absolutely no idea how I feel. And saying that, um, I felt was sort of condescending. Uh, why say these things? <clears throat> but um, for those people who have suffered a loss, uh, I, I would say that there are several things that I've learned from them and 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 if I'd like to pass along, which was <clears throat> that time does not heal grief, but in the space of time, you learn how to handle those feelings, and so grief becomes less scary. And I think the second thing that people who've experienced grief for the first time is uh, that there's a lot of anger that occurs, uh, and people are angry at everything and everyone, and it's very difficult on the surviving spouse or surviving children, uh, and that relationships change. Uh, Many things that were bad in the relationship get worse, but I've also seen relationships reset uh, and they get better. Um, And it's it's a very difficult process, uh, but in the end, I, I think we all learn in our own way that there is no right or wrong way to handle this, but but it'll you find your equilibrium on your own. Well, thank you. Those are wise words, hard-won wisdom. Uh, Jay, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you for coming on the show today and for your powerful and important book, Heirlooms, Memory, and Cherished Objects. Thank you for having me. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Thank you.